last night um, to to make dinner, to have dinner, but <laughs> yeah. more directly to make dinner. Okay. Because he's been, um, oh man. No, no, no. I'll just hand it to you when it's time. Uh, because he's been since he's moved in alone, he decided that he was, he would eat a little bit better if he got one of those meal delivery services. You know, oh my Blue Apron God. or HelloFresh or one of those, where the dollars can really soar. Yeah. yeah. It, oh you end God. up spending a lot of money, but yeah. But you know. In in the case of somebody in their early twenties, it's not a bad way to learn a couple cooking tricks, and, and and they don't do the old way like we did, like stand in the kitchen and watch grandma, you know. Well, so he comes over and and first off he brings his dog, so that was a fiasco because <laughs> uh-huh. his dog and my dog kind of look at each other, and my dog spent the evening in my bedroom because <laughs> my dog's a dick, and <laughs> and. Uh, and so he's cooking, and he's like, Dad, could you get this out for me? Dad, could you get this out for me? That kid had me get out fucking cooking utensils and bowls that he didn't, A, need, or B, even use. He's just keeping you busy. He just, like, every, my, there was so, like, I had to run dishwasher after he cooked one fucking meal. Well, you, you know what And he, it was because it was a one-pot delivery or service meal. You know what he did, and he was smart about this? He gave you a job so you didn't help. There might be some of that. Well, I mean, and he, he was smart. He's lived with you for a yeah, few years. I think that's okay, what was going on he gave you a job so you wouldn't find a job for you. Yeah, we <laughs> we did talk about co cooking, but co cooking in my kitchen is ridiculous. There's not enough room for two people. Uh, he did make some pretty damn fine pork tacos. I'll give him that. Okay, but following the directions and all, they were really tasty. I can see that that oh would my... actually be a good thing that meal service because you don't have to. There's no standing in the produce aisle yeah wondering what's on sale what am i gonna buy what do i want to make with this you know do i want to build my meal around this no everything comes it's pre-measured it's (laughs) right there you get all your spices you get everything like that and when you're young you don't know necessarily what things you're going to need and to buy and you can start thinking well i use cayenne pepper frequently and go buy a jar of cayenne pepper you Mm -hmm. know and you can start learning some of that stuff because you don't again they're kids they don't stand in the kitchen watch grandma cook like we did yeah, and, and they don't think that things like measuring spoons and measuring cups are important <laughs> until later in life. With- <laughs> he asked me for measuring spoons. I said, so a tablespoon's this much? And <laughs> drawing it out of my hand, he said, Dad, fuck off. Give me the goddamn measuring spoons. Okay. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is why they're subordinate beings. This is, yes. <laughs> this is why they're lesser than, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting. I'm starting to understand hiring servants, hiring cooks, hiring housekeepers. Housekeeper, I could totally see if it was anywhere near my budget. I can't pay myself to clean my house right now, so we're not going to work on that very soon. But that isn't even a topic you want to broach. That's fair. <laughs> that, that is fair. I mean, we are sitting in a room, however, that has like beads from Rupert's ex-wife still on the floor. So I get off on that, right? Do you think that there's any possibility these beads could ever be cleaned up? Yeah, you have a vacuum. I saw it. Yeah, no, that's like the black mold. You can never get it. <laughs> <laughs> Just go get a bucket no. of kills, pour it all over the whole room, and it'll be fine, right? Yeah. You know, you know. It's like, well, it's, it's like having children. It's the gift they just keeps giving. Well, it's like, you know, it's like they're beads, and beads are sort of like, you know. Every ex-wife comes with beads because you're never totally rid of them. You know, there's another name for that. It's called herpes. Yeah, right. <laughs> it is, uh, roughly but, the same size. It's a venereal disease that never leaves. No matter what you do. I mean, I've got, like, wives from, like, the other side of the continent. <laughs> you know, never even been near this house. And, and I still got their stuff. Like, some of their <laughs> stuff. You know, because I was like... 
sitting there thinking about it because, like, we were posting, you know, Tyler and me, like, we were sitting around and, like, it got to be a contest last Sunday where it was just like. Oh, that was fun. That was fun. It was just like, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, you know that thing where it's like, who's got the shittiest tattoo? It was just like, <laughs> let's let's sit here and dwell upon what's the shittiest record in your collection we can put on. Just listen right? to all shit. And, and we did. And, and so we did. Oh and, like, we wound up with uh, yeah, Chuck, Chuck Mangione. Feels so good. Feels so good. I posted it in my now playing <laughs> record group where normally there's, like, maybe... Ten likes. And I was disappointed best, it didn't go on your normal feed too, because I wanted to see the hate for myself. But yeah, I, well, I should post today. And so then I was like sitting around last night, and I was like thinking about it, and I was like, you know, um, I'll bet you if I go into my forty-five collection, I have my first wife's forty-five of Fox on the Run. No way. Jesus. Which is, like, delightfully horrible, you know? It's just... Look it up on Discogs, pretty, man. Pretty it might be worth some money. When yeah. I was pulling out that Kiroskiro, uh, I ran across Mike and the Mechanics that I didn't even know I bought. Like, who the fuck buys Mike and the Mechanics? I um, guess I do. Yeah, very, very <laughs> easily could have been you that same day at yeah. the uh, thrift market. Mike what and the Mechanics, that was totally like anybody who worked in a bar bought that album. Right? Yeah, that's, that's why you have it. Alphaville got yeah. that, but Alphaville isn't horrible. Wait a second, wait a second. If you have Mike and the Mechanics, like there's there's like one step like worse. Gary Lewis? No, no, no. That's <laughs> that might be a step above in some ways. Yeah. Do you have any uh, bare naked ladies? No. Oh, God, really? no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. And if somebody gives it to me, I'm going to take it out. But oh, I'm going to take it up in the woods, and that will become target practice. Ooh. Oh, how about yeah? Old shitty records would make about, good how targets. About, how, how about uh? And you guys are good. I, I think I might get punched here, but uh, do you guys have any uh, blues traveler? No. <laughs> no. Didn't like it then. Don't like it now. Right? No. Uh -uh. Can't do that. Um, I I just remembered. I'm going to have to call my therapist in the morning. Okay, then. Good plan. Bare naked ladies and blues traveler. (laughs) Yeah. Bad touch. I was. Yeah, really, really bad touch. You know, I was over at Rupert's. Okay, enough said. (laughs) I got a bad touch at Rupert's. That isn't the. I'm not the first person to say it. So, should we get so, this So, ladies and gentlemen, we are Ruined Heroes, a free, self-produced podcast. Weekly. That word's th- in there. I'm, I'm making it my own, man. Okay. <laughs> that is weekly, yourself, can you? <laughs> no, where the can't. three of us obnoxiously discuss a topic. <laughs> we may have to edit my normal words. Of so Seattle <laughs> renowned. I, Rupert, study like a man who might own Wasting Away in Margaritaville. Oh, shit. <laughs> I do not. I'm John, and I actually own Harry Chapin. Uh, I'm Whoa. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know if that That's makes like better admitting or worse. to a Scheisse movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. Okay. On vinyl, 180 grain, baby. <laughs> and Tyler. I'm Tyler, and I actually read a book for this episode. That's right, you did. I did. That's not a lot. Oh, did I'm you find out what it was beforehand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, so yeah, we, the roles we reversed. We're at two the roles reversed. One, we're he and I, yeah, he and I plotted against you, and he's oh, like, yeah. have you ever, and I was like, okay, and so I read a whole book. So, <laughs> please subscribe. 
And leave us good ratings and reviews on whatever podcast feed you get us through. It's free, and believe it or not, it helps. To interact with us, God knows why. (laughs) We are Ruined Heroes Pod with the at sign and then gmail.com. As well as easily found on Facebook, Twitter, where you can get weekly hints. Say hi. We like it when you do that. Take guesses at the hint. God, just you can't you can't help I yourself. Can't, no, I already said this. Do you have duct tape? No. I think we might need some. There's I got some. leather straps holding you probably- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm also thinking that there's probably a ball gag or two laying around. <laughs> So uh, just so the studio audience knows, we're sort of in Rupert's, like... We're in Mom's basement. Yeah. We're in Mom's basement, which has been converted into a little bit of uh, leatherworking machinery. <laughs> Say hi. <laughs> Twice. If you would like to contribute to the cost of the show, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash ruinedheroes, and that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Yes. That made me happy. <laughs> And start getting extra content for just $1 a month. Links are in the show notes as well as on our website, which is beautifully done, ruinedheroes.com. And I never, ever, ever again want to hear you complain about either of us interrupting the stuff. Ever. I had to keep... Ever. 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 Don't ever, ever, ever open your mouth about anybody interrupting you when you do the stuff. Don't you ever fucking do it again. Ever. Continuing the Ever. And I'm going to give you shit on the You will need to self-castrate if you ever interrupt. No, 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 no. (laughs) Is there a Japanese word for self-castration? It's called hentai. Give me a second. <laughs> that was actually well that was played, sir. Well played. Very quick. That was that was that's well done. All right, so John, you ready for some hints? Sure, why so not? I've got three. He appeared in two movies. In his second appearance, or his second movie, he is known for ten seconds as a lookalike, but it was actually him. In Annie Hall. No fucking way. Now I gotta watch Annie Hall again. Okay, I've never seen Annie Hall, so. <coughs> well, then you're not gonna. Yeah. In the first of these two movies, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for his portrayal of Lionel Twain, a man missing his pinkies, <laughs> yet having ten fingers. In actuality, his pinkies were quite large. It was a decent movie, too. I'll give you sort of a part B of that okay. hint. Here are some quotes. And I will attempt to do it in this person's voice. So oh, now Jesus. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> oh, Lord. I don't know if I got enough Jaeger for this. I'm so fucking in. You know, Mr. Wang. It amazes me that somebody who has lived in this country can't say his articles or prepositions. Say your prepositions! Terrifyingly accurate. Actually. That's the first quote from this, <laughs> this movie. First movie. Okay. The second quote is also directed at Mr. Wang Moose! Moose, you idiot! <laughs> say it! 
I don't know. <laughs> I had never seen the movie, and I came over here for movie night because I was that was more of my research. And Rupert had to like dig out the hard drive with the. What we no, won't say how, how we got how, it. Copy of the movie. <laughs> what? Um, how long ago was the movie? Was the movie done? Long, long time. Sixty, late sixties, early seventies. Okay. Maybe? So I'm, I'm looking for somebody in that era. Um, James Con. Hmm? I don't know. <laughs> That's the only seventies <laughs> actor you know, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's the third one, and this is uh, this is really lobbing it in. He taught himself to read and write before entering school. This short, short story writer began writing fiction at age 11. Insight. The short, short is on purpose. Well, now, here's well, the platter from Pot Time. I'm just trying. I don't know. I don't think that John's very familiar with this person. You, no. might, you might just like just not be... No. I, I mean... I think he's a little out of time for you, too, so... I might even go with Danny DeVito in that one. Oh, uh, that's about the right height. <laughs> about the right height. <laughs> and about the right obnoxiousness. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong tribe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, no, it's not the Spaceballs. Mm-mm. It's not Rick Moranis. Mm-mm. Born... Truman Streckfus Persons, September 30th, 1924, in New Orleans, Louisiana, to Lily Mae Falk and salesman Arculus Persons. Falk? Like Peter Falk? Yeah. And Arculus? Ar- salesman Arculus Persons. I am very glad I did not have to read nor type that name. You know who it is now? His parents were divorced when he was true, and he was sent to Monroeville, Alabama, where, for the following four to five years, he was raised by his mother's relatives. He formed a fast bond with his mother's distant relative, Nanny Rumbly Folk. (laughs) Nanny Rumbly Folk? This, like, he didn't make these names yeah, yeah. up. This is bullshit. These this are, is bullshit. You're making this whole fucking episode up. That's what it well, is. I mean, this whole thing is imaginary. It's coming out of Rupert's head. This is all this is. I okay. can see why you would think that. <laughs> but, I mean, like, I'm just because I can see him doing this. I'm whom concerned Tru- that this person made these names up as part of characters that he was building. Whom I, Truman just, called Souk. His Truman quote, Capote. <gasps> yes. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Truman Capote. His quote about. Nanny Rumbly Folk. <laughs> Is Rumbly Folk one word? No, it's two seconds. Oh, that's right, because it's Folk. Okay. His quote about her was, Her face is remarkably not unlike Lincoln's. <laughs> oh, my God. Lincoln, notoriously one of the least attractive presidents we've ever had. We're better than his wife. Well. Okay. <laughs> I mean, come on. Let's be realistic here. If you're, if you're in a swingers party they're and not, there's Abe and Mary Todd, you're going for Abe, okay? <laughs> they're not the keys you want to pull out of the bowl. No, yeah. Yeah, like that is not. Like, you're all, fuck, room 17. Son of a bitch. Hey, <laughs> I'm going to need some of those blue pills and a lot of that booze. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some red hot pokers for my eyes. God, can you imagine how many people would be in this country if we had blue pills back then? Because they were already making kids left and right. Yeah, but it would be so bad. Yeah, but only half of them survived, so it's okay. (laughs) 
1932, he moved to New York City <coughs> to live with his mother, Nina, an oddly normal name. So at 32, he is how old? In 1932, he moved to New York City. But how old is he just get roughly? So at this point, he would be eight. Okay. Nina and her second husband, Jose Garcia Capote, oh, a bookkeeper well, from Cuba who adopted okay. <laughs> him as his son and renamed, and renamed him Truman Garcia Capote. I liked Persons. That wasn't bad. Yeah. Miraculous Persons. Truman Persis, Persons. That kind of works. Nina was a beautiful yet unapologetic social climber. I think I married her. <laughs> beautiful, unapologetic. <laughs> oh, that's called Gold Digger. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> that, that's your standard, you know, I'm going to marry a celeb and use the money kind of situation. Well, she, she's marrying a, a, a Cuban bookkeeper. It's a little Lucille Ball. That is okay, a little what, Lucille Ball. What that's called is working for hey, the mob. <laughs> you're working. You, you, you're married into the cartel. That's what know. happened there. I don't know. At 36, the, car, the Cubans had as much pull as they do now. Oh, yeah. No, I think they did because, like, they had all the casinos down there and everything. Like, all that shit was going on. There really? Was, like, big it, money going on there. Huh. Well, oh, I yeah. mean, it is an easy place to get to when you're leaving the country that won't allow you to drink in the mid-30s, Right. Yeah, I mean, that's why it was extremely popular. Cuba, Cuba was it's like, just right off Florida. Cuba's yeah. like, you know, it's actually in the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, you know, back then, I mean, that was, it was, oh, what is the. So, at any rate. Turston Caicos? In the Mediterranean. Um, Turston Caicos. Uh, Monaco. Monaco. Yeah, it was it was kind of like Monaco. You My know? geography is bad, but is Monaco Monaco? No, it's not. not in the, Monaco is yeah. not. Yeah, it's not the Mediterranean. It's, it's not I was thinking an island. No, no. <laughs> I was, what I was thinking of is it's a resort destination. Cuba was kind of like that in the thirties. It was a resort destination. There was gambling. There was yeah, except it was like tropical and but and fun. in terms of the gambling thing, yeah, yeah, for yeah. Sure. yeah it was, it was a destination I, okay, resort. I, I see Sex it. workers, maybe. I see your tie in there. So yeah. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. Why I was stuck on the Mediterranean there. My my brain and my mouth just did not get on the same page in that one. It's fine. My geography is bad enough. I was falling. Like I, that. I actually think most of the <laughs> islands in the Mediterranean are known as places you don't want to be from, like because like Napoleon was like <laughs> he got banished to Elba. He came from Corsica. Neither one of those were considered good. Then he got Sicily, which right. isn't exactly considered not a great not, win. Not the high tone area. I mean, I can't really think of too much that's going on there. But, I mean, I'm, it could just it's be some good some, food. So, at any rate, in 1932, <laughs> okay, so he moves to, to, so, unapologetic social climber. Right, right. Gold they digger. They wind yeah. up. Gold digger. Yeah. 1932, they moved to New York City. Well, at least they didn't go to France. She's <laughs> a social climber. Eventually, they're living on Park Avenue until 1952. That's socially climbing. That's some good social climbing. Yeah, that, that is, is some really some good drug really money. Good yeah, you've got some climbing. like that is some embezzlement skills or something like that. You can climb that jungle gym. That's pretty good. That's called a magic snapping pussy. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> all right, Carlin. It's, 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 it's that's a magic snapping pussy. <laughs> it's called a very uh, interesting Cuban accountant uh, who li- lands you there. They wind up living there until 1952. Until. Jose uh, Jose Garcia Capote gets convicted of embezzlement. Well, Whoa. now you know why he's That's on how Park Avenue. That's how we can live on Park Avenue. 
embezzling, but he... Well, okay, he was an accountant, so he was probably embezzling from everybody, I'm guessing, then. Like, I mean, if he started out in Cuba... You know, like a little bit here, a little bit there. embezzlement, accountant's figure in that crime... Well, let's, let's speak to the accountant. Uh, how's that work, John? <laughs> well, there's two types of accountants. There's the ones that want to catch the people that embezzle, and there's the other ones that want to figure out how to do it really well. On well, Abel, I think the same skills are required of both sides of that game. So they got to leave Park Avenue because he's convicted of embezzlement. they got no money coming in. Did he go to the clink for it? Yeah, he went to the clink. Oh, shit. Unable to face her reduced circumstances, they moved out. <laughs> Do you see how I'm doing this? Queens? Do you see how I'm doing this like in a Capote vibe? It is coming through a little bit, yes. <laughs> Unable to face her reduced circumstances. They moved out, and she committed suicide two years later. Truman Ooh. was 29. Oh, Ooh. dear. Oh, dear Lord. Okay, all I'm seeing is a Scarlet O'Hara fucking moment here. <laughs> well, you got a social climber with no jungle gym. You got nothing. Right. That's you know? Yeah, that, it doesn't matter how good that snapping golden pussy works. If you got nobody willing, to, you, the, nobody's but, willing to let you use it on them. You see well, the her ch- man is in the clink. You see the choppy waters here <laughs> already. So in 1942, Truman Capote began working as a copy boy in the art department at the New Yorker. Copy boy. C-O-P, not coffee, C-O-F-F-E. Copy boy. Okay. In the art department at the New Yorker, which is, you know, New Yorker is like sort of the nation's it's foremost the literary magazine. magazine. at that point in time. But, yeah. like, they also have cartoons and the mm-hmm. cover, yep. so there is some artwork in it. A job he held for two years... Oh, hey, that's surprising. Before he does being, not strike me as somebody who does two years at one job. A job he held for two years before being fired for angering poet Bobby Frost. Oh, really? Yeah, stopping in the woods at a snowy evening. Hey. Obviously, Truman had to get kicked out of Log Pissed cabin. off Rod- Robert Frost. Pissed off Robert Frost got fired. Wow. Okay, so Robert... So the fire doesn't surprise me that much. And and Frost was kind of a stuffy dude. Bob Frost was known as not a pleasant individual. Yeah, he was a... Probably because he was trying to make his living writing poetry. Or chasing around the country with his dog, Charlie. Which is actually, in Rupert Hughes' book, The World's Hardest Profession. Poet? Making money at poetry? Yeah. No. Making a living at poetry. (laughs) Yeah. Like, if anybody's a published poet, I'm just, like, really impressed with them. Like, Shel Silverstein? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come no, on. But, like, be but real. Shel did so much other work. Like, he was a songwriter and all kinds mm. of things. Yeah. But but making, like, a living at poetry, that yeah. doesn't happen. Especially now. Well, because, yeah, I mean, the, the extent of anything that ever happens is a meme on Facebook. There is that, and you can't get a whole poem across, and even in a meme, but you, nobody's got an attention span to read a poem. And there's no money in limericks. <laughs> Years so. later, Truman reflected, "Not a very good job. For all it really involved was sorting cartoons and clipping newspapers. Still, I was fortunate to have it, Copy especially boy. since I was determined never to set foot in a studious college classroom." I felt that either one was or was not a writer, and no combination of professors could influence the outcome. I still think I was correct, at least in my own case. Well, this stands <laughs> true. Like, so in the in the this is another guy that feels that his education shouldn't get in the way of his learning. Uh, you mean his um, studies shouldn't get in the way of his education? Is the way that's it. Well, this is a but guy. Yeah, who, uh, this is a guy who taught himself to read and write before he going went to, to school. school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it does stand true, like reading the preface that's written by him of um, 
uh, Breakfast for Chameleons, or Music for Chameleons, which is the book I read, he does talk a lot about there are people that write and there are people that write shitty. And that's kind of what he he stuck with was was he had the way of it because he had the vision and he never wanted to be one of those lesser fuckers. So here I'm going to do a reading from the the title story, the, the title track of Music for Chameleons. And this is one of my all-time favorite short stories, and I think it illustrates, like, Capote's genius really well. So the story is Music for Chameleons. She is tall and slender, perhaps 70, silver-haired, swagnate. Oh, shit, that was the word I meant to... Swagnate. Define. Go ahead. Define it now. And then you can start it, to it pull means, it over. It um, means uh, well-groomed, uh, aristocratic... She is tall and slender, perhaps 70, silver-haired, silver neither black nor white, a pale golden rum color. She is a Martinique aristocrat who lives in Fort de France, but also has an apartment in Paris. We are sitting on the terrace of her house, an airy, elegant house that looks as if it was made of wooden lace. It reminds me of certain New Orleans houses. We are drinking iced mint tea with a slightly flavored absinthe. So do you see how that he, is some good afternoon drinking? In that one short paragraph, he takes you right into the scene. Yep. Which uh, is one of the things I really liked where about you can his writing. Really feel the scene that you know. He's That's that. There. That is a. Some people will argue that um, adjectives and things like that. You don't need to go so heavy with them, and it's not the case. You need to use the right adjective. Right. He's being very painterly with his... Yes. Yeah. You know, but sparing. He's, he's not an abstract expression. He wants to pack as much know. into one word as he can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he does. He really... Mm-hmm. His writing is... Swagnate, for instance. And, yeah. and very precise. And so by next, the way, I knew it swagnate meant. Next paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> Look who's the master. Three green chameleons race one across... Race one another across the terrace. One pauses at Madame's feet, flicking its forked tongue, and she comments, Chameleons, such exceptional creatures, the way they change color, red, yellow, lime, pink, lavender. And did you know they are very fond of music? She regards me with her fine black eyes. You don't believe me? So you see, in the second paragraph... Which is only like a total of five sentences. Yeah, he is... It's the hook. He's like Lionel Richie you and drawing you into the song. <laughs> you know, you see that? Like how he's he just the first yeah, one. You, you know, it's not it's not Lionel Richie, but you definitely got Electro Boogaloo. The, the first one sets you sets the stage. Yeah. And, and then the second, the second one is like the hook. What's gonna happen? Yeah. 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 Living, loving, she's just a woman. <laughs> down, 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 down. You know, I mean and that's like, you know, just the way he writes is just so incredible. So he starts writing a bunch of short stories, and the critical success of Miriam in 1945 attracted the attention of publisher Bennett Cerf, famous guy, resulting in a contract with Random House. Was it schlocky? So, publisher. for clarity, was it straight out of the gates he got yeah, noticed, or much. did he have to like shop it around a whole bunch? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much straight out of the gates, resulting huh. in a contract with Random House to write a novel. This is in 1945. With an advance of fifteen hundred dollars, Jesus, I think was a shitload. That's a bunch of money in forty-five. Yeah, because you know people are getting paid like what fifty dollars a month. Yeah, well, but I mean, the advance for a, a writer is generally so you can do nothing but write, and they got to like incorporate your booze bill and shit into that. 
And so, like, we're going to pay you six months worth of money. Okay, let's call it um, a, a good, nice, long $150 a month. That's still 10 solid months. Yeah. Of you doing nothing but write this damn book. And that's, I mean, okay, so this is right after World War II when, a, yes. when you could buy a house for what? Fifteen fifteen hundred dollars. So with an advance of fifteen hundred bucks, uh, Capote returns to Monroeville, Alabama, to begin other voices, other rooms. Anybody's ever been to Monroeville, Alabama knows you're going to have some time to write there. <laughs> <laughs> the novel is a semi autobiographical reflection of Capote's Alabama childhood. Other voices, other rooms comes out. Makes the New York Times bestseller list and stays there for nine weeks. Jesus, straight out of the shoot. He's on the bull and he's riding it. And it's he's crazy. on the bestsellers list. Yeah, <coughs> stays there for nine weeks. Sells First book out, twenty six thousand copies. That's how low the population was. You know, wow. honestly, <laughs> well, I mean, we, right we now, blew that a little out of proportion. What's that? Um, that fifteen hundred dollars in nineteen forty five. Yeah, yeah, is only basically twenty two grand today. There are people that live on significantly less than twenty-two grand a year. Twenty-two grand for an advance on your first book—that's not bad. Good luck to you f- trying to find that. That's that's a lot. I'll take it, but it's not going to happen. It is. It is interesting. Again, like so, straight out of the gate, that he's yeah. I mean, yeah. directly to the bestseller Boom. list. Well, yeah, he's just and like, he took the first offer because the first offer was actually he didn't have to get the rejection notices. Well, and it was Random House, it was yeah. a decent publisher. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that's yeah, like, he's gonna he's gonna get somebody listening. Boom! He's right out of the gate in with one of the biggest publishers in the country with like a pretty big advance. No first author ever gets it. You're not. You're not going to get a $20,000 advance now. No. In fact, no. most of the time you've well, written the book and you're shopping it around. You're yeah. not getting Why don't you do it for free for exposure? That old, right? ru- that old ruse. Well, yeah. Now you get people that like self um, – they, they go ahead and they, yeah. they self-publish, but they do it through yeah. uh, virtual means. Yeah. You know, you, you get your Kindle downloads. You get things like that. Well, or it's, or it's published on demand is real common too. Yeah. And I've got a handful of friends that have books that are published on demand. Somebody, yeah, we've got somebody one. Somebody orders one and it goes – We've got one. What do you mean we've got one? Our sister. Oh. She did a book a long time ago. Oh. Okay, so the promotion and controversy surrounding this novel cal- catapulted <laughs> Cody to fame. <laughs> A 1947 Harold Halma photograph used to promote the book showed a reclining Capote gazing fiercely into the camera. That's not going to make me buy a book. Like, it's a knowing very what Capote weird, looks like, weird picture. I'm not buying weird that Weird picture, book. especially for it's the time. It's very strange. Um, in, the bio, in, in Gerald Clark's biography, the famous photograph... In the dust jacket caused as much comment and controversy as the pros inside. Truman claimed that the camera had caught him off guard, but in fact he had posed himself and respons- was responsible for both the picture and its publicity. Mm. Smart guy. Smart <laughs> guy. Yeah, but this is another one of those where I'm going to take it and I'm going to work at my angle and then deny that I had anything to do with it situations. We run into those. Well, I mean, actually that's called good business. Yeah. If it works, it was all my idea. If, if it doesn't, at, I can blame somebody else. If you look at this, <laughs> I mean, that's just good fucking business. That's fair. If you look at this picture in 1945, this would have been a wild picture to have it on a dust jacket. Yeah, well, and yeah. he's not a particularly attractive or shapely guy. He was actually sort of like he's sort of like nondescript looking back then. He's a young man. He hadn't gotten crazy flamboyant yeah. yet. Yeah. 
it, but he was. I mean, like he was aware that he was gay. So from day yeah, but, one. but also yeah. don't don't try to hit it. Don't try to look at it through today's lens. So look at it through 1945 lens. Fair, you know. Yeah, you you got to dress like Death as a Salesman. So I'm not covering fit in, right? everything here. So you know, then we come to Breakfast at Tiffany's, the other you know a big one. The novella itself was originally supposed to be published in Harper's Bazaar. As a short story. July 1958 yeah. issue, several months before its publication. You might have to tell Random people House. what Harper's Bazaar is. <laughs> <laughs> Harper's Bazaar was like sort of like a standard family magazine. Every, it was like it was Saturday in every night. house, every yeah, doctor's office. Kind of yeah. thing. Um, the publisher of Harper's Bazaar, the Hearst Corporation. Which, oh, fuck these people. Okay. Which they owned every newspaper in the country and that kind of thing. They began demanding language changes for Capote's tart wording, which, oh, he, which reluctant- he was not going to be into, I imagine. He reluctantly made because he liked the photos that accompanied this thing by David Addy and the design work by Harper's art director. So pictures that they had taken to promote the book, he liked enough to allow them to change his prose? Yeah, he liked the book well, so I much think that, that he made the changes. He made the changs. They didn't change him. He uh, he was he had just had he had to reword things so they were happy because he Which enjoyed is re- it's really, the accompanying that's not media. That's so uncommon. No, it's that's called editing. But he's that's so, called listen to your editor. It's really so odd the, though because like Breakfast at Tiffany's is is in no way tardy. Really, I mean, it's not. Imagine like, what it would have started at though. Well, <laughs> I mean, if it had to come it. down some, <laughs> and that's where it ended. I I don't know. It just. It, he's so attached to the way that he words things that it surprises well, me. Well, you're right. But he still worded right. things the way that he wanted to. He just found a different way to a do softer it. Softer delivery is what yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. And he was so attached to the accompanying media because it tried to help. And maybe it's because this is how I get my message really across. This is really what I'm trying to say. And it's going to help by, you know, giving all of these platforms for this story. So yeah. despite his compliance, troubled by Hearst by the pictures. ordered Harper's not to run the novella anyway. <laughs> its language and subject matter were still deemed not suitable, and there was concern that Tiffany's, which was a major advertiser, would react ne- negatively. Uh-huh. That makes sense. But, I mean... Yeah, the, see, that's where it, the, the whole crux of it comes into. Yeah, I think that's You don't really want to piss off Tiffany's. Here. Yeah, well, but if you look at it in, histor- in historical eyes now... There's every probability that the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's has made Tiffany's even more popular than they were beforehand. Because it is that romantic, I'm going to go, you know. Yeah, but do you want Capote's novella defining Tiffany's, Tiffany's. of New York? Probably not then, <laughs> but I... Exactly. I, I See, now Breakfast at Tiffany's celebrates Tiffany's. I, I, yeah. It's I like, oh, yay. Doubt it's something But that I they doubt that regret. anything Capote would have written... I don't know. Back then, he's like on a first draft. Back then, he's been a, anywhere pleasant. Back then, he's a celebrated writer. I mean, yeah, he's been on bestseller list. This is his third book mm-hmm. or fourth book, something like that. Yeah, and and so I mean, it is at least some, it's somebody with some writing cred coming and talking about Tiffany's. But I mean, Tiffany's is yeah. But what happens if he was trying to Miley Cyrus the thing? Oh, what you talking about, Willis? Miley he wants Cyrus to put a little twerking in it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So an outraged Capote eventually sells the novella to Esquire for its November 1958 issue. Oh, now that's that's mm. moving up. Esquire was damn near a nudie mag then. 
Yeah, I think Esquire was considered sort of the men's magazine yeah. prior to Playboy. Yeah. You know, uh, and, you know, definitely for a little time. In the 60s, Esquire was considered kind of racy. Yeah. You know. Uh, what was that magazine that came out? Like Perfect Tens or whatever? All natural. Details. It wasn't nudity. It, it was, there was no nudity in it at all. But it was all natural. Um, and it had, it was dedicated to men. It, uh, it was, sounds like a Gwyneth Paltrow product. This was like during the, this, this is the same era that like the Man Show with Adam Carolla was going on. Okay, wasn't it yeah. de- Details was one they came out and did yeah. that, and they didn't have like full nudity. But, but it Esquire was, was kind of the same yeah. way. It was like here's here's something for men. Yeah, it had, it had very attractive women. It, it had, had your had, culture yeah. articles. It had your fashion articles. Here's how to celebrate. It had manhood. pictures of the nature of like Cosmo covers, like deep yeah. cleavage shots. It, yeah, it didn't right. show any nudity or anything right. like that. You know, so he sold it to Esquire under the condition that they run all these pictures that he's crazy about that he got from a totally when he was working with a different publisher. Right? Yeah. Uh, to his disappointment, the magazine ran just a single full-page image of the photographs. So that's not how you make a cranky. Yeah, that, that's not what he wants. He wants the, to be everywhere and the, everything. The novella uh-huh. was eventually picked up by Random House shortly afterwards. So, Shocker! So you know they I know mean, where their money comes from. Yeah, it's like come on, like they and he knows how to get printed. Yeah, yeah. So then, in cold blood comes out. In Cold Blood, a true account of a multiple multiple murder and its consequences. And possibly the first true crime novel ever. It was. It was inspired by a 300-word article that ran in the November 16, 1959 issue of the New York Times. The story described the unexplained murder of the Clutter family. <laughs> <laughs> More great names. <laughs> In rural Holcomb, Kansas, and quoted the local sheriff as saying, this is apparently the case of a psychopathic killer. Fascinated by this brief news item, Capote traveled with his good friend Harper Lee, who wrote, I, Jesus. Think, yeah. I think, To Kill a Mocking yes. yep. um, to Holcomb and visited the scene of the massacre. He coins the phrase, he comes up with this thing of a nonfiction novel. <coughs> and that's that's what he says he's going to start doing which has it. been which has become true crime but he didn't he spend like almost a six, year or more six there? years on this thing yeah six years like and living in kansas for the most part he would travel and go back to the city and such from what i understand but he like kind of lived in kansas yeah well, I mean, non-fiction novels also known as biographies <laughs> i guess i could see that yeah I guess I could see no. that. You're telling the story of... You're telling a story well, about a real person. A person about a per, he's not telling a story about a person. He's telling a story about a murder. Like, in what happened? You know? Okay, arguably it could be said that they're telling the story about the killer. It's a true crime novel. It is. Or, or, it's true crime. It's it like the mm-hmm. beginning of Helter Skelter and all or, that kind of Or stuff. Anne Rule or any of that. Yeah. yeah. Over the course of the next few years, he became acquainted with everybody involved in the, vacation, in the investigation and most of the residents of the small town in the area. Rather than taking notes during the interview, Capote committed conversations to memory and immediately wrote quotes as soon as the interview ended. He claimed his memory retention for verbatim conversations had been tested at over 90%. Well, and it, this is a theme with him going forward he does seem to have an amazing retention for actual conversations. And when he writes a conversation, you really feel like you're there in the middle of the conversation. My guess is he doesn't interrupt a lot. 
Uh, he, he's not waiting for other people to end speaking before he speaks. He's just waiting to listen. It, it's, it's a theme of his writing and something that you, you see when you read something that he has written in, which is part of the reason I read that book, is because it is a lot of him recounting conversations, even from his youth and into his adult age. It is something that it can be noted. It's very real, in situ reading. Yeah, I just, read I, I, I don't really have appreciation for the book. I just was, in, in terms of, I love Capote's writing, and that is like my least favorite thing of his. I just am not into it. Just because it's, I, and I think it's because I'm jaded because it's like I read Helter Skelter and I read all that stuff and it's like, you know, it's uh, of its time and of its place. I've actually never read anything Capote through and through. I've run across things and I've like, I've read little in, excerpts. Mm-hmm. Neither, I, I, neither had I. Okay. That's why so I enjoyed I, it. When we, I enjoyed when we it. I, together, I really like, enjoyed it. And I, what I realized was this is the kind of thing that you have to be in the mood for it. You have to sit down and say, I want to read Capote. It's not like, okay, well, I just need some nighttime reading material, and you pull Capote off the shelf. You know? Even <laughs> even the light reading of Capote is not that light reading. Like exactly. Like you, you know? You are present in that moment when you're reading it, and he's really good at that. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, maybe he's supposedly tested it over 90% as a stretch, but he did seem to have a really mm-hmm. good retention for actual conversations. So In Cold Blood was published in 1966 by Random House <laughs> after having been serialized in The New Yorker. I don't know who's sucking whose dick there. The non- <laughs> They're doing it well. <laughs> the nonfiction novel, as Capote labeled it, brought him literally accla- literary acclaim and became an international bestseller. But Capote would never complete another novel after that. The year it was published, he held what later became the legendary black and white ball mm. at the New York Plaza Hotel for 500 of his very closest friends. <laughs> Just a couple of people. These included the Duke of Windsor and his wife, Wallace Simpson, Lady Bird Johnson, the, the yeah. president's wife. Frank Sinatra and his wife, and Mia Farrow, Frank Sinatra and his wife, Mia Farrow. While the ball was a huge success, it also marked a slow drift from writing towards celebrity. He would, you know, never did another novel after this. He, although he did continue to write. And black and white balls are still a thing. They still happen. Well, maybe not the last couple of years, but nothing has happened for the last couple of years. But they, they do still happen. So did he, the very first black and white ball, or was it a thing then, do you know? No, I think it was a thing then. I don't think he invented it. I mean, it seems... As he goes forward with his celebrity, that he might have been fashionable enough to establish okay, so it. I can believe it. Skipping over some stuff here. So, Capote was always openly gay. Yes. He never was a closeted guy. Um, eventually, he spent the majority of his life until his death with a guy named Jack Dumphy, a fellow writer. That's not a great name. In his book, Dear Genius, a memoir of my life with Truman Capote, Dunphy attempts to ex- both explain the Capote he knew and loved within their relationship and the very success-driven and eventually drug and alcohol-addicted person who ex- existed outside their relationship. So this Dumphy guy is, what, a coke fuel, fueled writer maybe? No, he's like the sober yeah. one. And he's he the sober one. And, yeah. and he's the, dealing with he's dealing with a stripper. The riddled one. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's he's been with a stripper his entire life, and they're both gay in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and and spoiler alert, I don't know how much Rupert has on it, but Rupert Capote became very well known in things like the Studio 54 scene and those kind mm-hmm. of things. Yeah, so you got a stripper that doesn't know how to stop spreading her legs for everybody, and you got the guy that's sitting at home. Waiting for them to come cleaning. home, wondering where they are, making yeah. sure the refrigerator's stocked. Paying the bills. But this is the thing that that really drew me to Capote was I loved him because he was, um, you know, he was a New York fixture when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, Capote, it could be argued, invented the gay queen icon. Uh, Like the snarky. I could see that. um, The throwing shade attitude kind of thing. And every single comment and the, yep. go- the gossip and the party guy. Mm-hmm. and But still, you know, don't take him on verbally because he will cut you to ribbons. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he, I think he defined that segment of gay culture, that art type, which, like, I, I loved it. Like, you know, I'd see him on Carson and stuff like that. And I was like, this guy's like him, his own self, you know, all the time. All of the time. He doesn't give a shit. No. And to me, that was just like a huge thing growing up. I loved seeing that. Well, and it comes from it comes from such sh- <laughs> like shot from a cannon early success. Yeah. Like when when you decide that you're not ever going to work in a as an apprentice assistant or a copy boy ever again, and run off write your first book that becomes a first a bestseller, why would you ever adjust your attitude? Not to mention he was. Diminutive guy. He's tiny. Yeah. Plus, he was he was really good at it. He was a very clever man. In any interview, he was mm-hmm. he was you know, super witty, very witty, clever, smart guy, smart guy. So, uh, you know, now he's defining his you know caddy queen thing and his celebrity, and it starts sort of hitting him because he's going to all these parties and doing all these drugs and all this kind of thing, and he comes up with. Um, a book of like short stories called Answered Prayers. It was his downfall and never finished. The satirical novel, which he had been working on since 1958, was to be his magnum opus, a portrait of the New York glitterati he knew so well. Right, so oh. so this this sounds pretty good. This like, sounds really you know, juicy. Here's, here's this guy. It, it almost <laughs> sounds like it's actually really kind of cool that he didn't finish it because that story is not done telling itself. It would be that a, that that you know that glitterati still exists. It still oh, happens. But, it's still ongoing. So it sounds like you know him not finishing that book. Well, he's in the late seventies. <laughs> this the beginning of like Jordache jeans. The upcoming of of people like um, Calvin and or Ann Klein, not related. Uh, those kind of people, and and they're running around with Freddie Mercury, and they're running around. Yeah, <laughs> didn't need to see your briefs, but yeah. Um, it, so it, he starts working on this thing in 1978. In 19, I mean, in 1958. Right. Mm-hmm. In 1975, Esquire magazine published one of the finished chapters, La Cote Basque. Wow. Hmm. Which either mentioned them personally or under a fictitious name. Mick Jagger Ah, yay! He described (laughs) as moving like a parody between a majorette girl and Fred Astaire. (laughs) (laughs) 
That is a really succinct way to define Mick Jagger's very awkward stage presence. Let's revert back to his use of adjectives. Yeah. <laughs> I think he may have nailed something down. Lots of fucking meaning in just a couple of words. That's pretty good. Princess Would you Margaret. Read that again for me, please, just because I enjoyed it. <laughs> Mick Jagger, he described as acting like a parody between a majorette girl and Fred Astaire. That's so good. I can just see that's Fred so beautiful. Actually, that's not even an adjective. I guess that's two Fred Astaire yeah. at the front of the parade in Gary, Indiana, and it's just making me happy. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Princess Margaret, he remarked. Uh oh. A very high-strung girl who wants to be royalty on the one hand and on the other a hippie. <laughs> that, I mean, that's succinct. That's royalty. He also described her as almost putting one to sleep on account of being such a drone. Oh, how droll <laughs> she is, right? Uh, I've, I've had conversations with those people. Similarly, he alluded to the real-life 1955 shooting and killing of banking heir... William Woodward Jr. by his wife Anne, who claimed she had mistaken him for a burglar. Oh no! It's, it's although was suspected by many of out-and-out murder. After discussing, after discovering that the chapter was to be published in Esquire, Anne killed herself by taking cyanide. Whoa. That's a guilty charge. Like, we have to lie on allegedly, but that's a fucking guilty charge, right? That's nuts. I Cyanide, too. That's not an easy way to go. Yeah. That's not an, like, sleeping pills makes more sense, right? Yeah, you could probably get cyanide a little. Well, I mean, if you want to crush up a bunch of apple seeds, you can get fucking So the public is just the 70s? 75. Okay. 75. Yeah. So, yeah. We're halfway through the 70s. Okay, cyanide isn't exactly going to be the easiest thing to get a hold of, but rat poison is still no, very you available. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I don't, yeah, exactly. I think it was rat poison is rat very poison available. Outside. And it was, I mean, that was cyanide back then. Yeah, but, you don't you don't go into an apothecary and get cyanide. You just, you go to a hardware store to get rat poison. <laughs> <laughs> Crush a little bit up, put it in your tea, move merrily into the next good night, right? Uh that's so rough. the publication of the Answered Prayers extract led to Truman's immediate dismissal from New York High Society, yet further ignominy was to follow. Really? Yeah, I mean, you do, like, the, you do that, Well, I mean, he called out a done. princess you're done. And, and, and Mr. a Mickey high society banker Jagger. and Mick Jagger yeah, all okay. at the same time in we the mid-70s. We may have had one of those things where I've actually always read a word. Ignominy. Oh. Ignominy? Yeah. Ignominy? Ignominy? I say... I, I'm in your boat. I've only read it. I say ignominy. I've mm-hmm. never had to say it. I probably would mispronounce it because I don't have a native language. So. Yeah. We, we, we might be on banal or banal. Well, I think it's because you don't insult people enough. That <laughs> could be the problem. You see the parallels here. No, no, no. I insult them. I'm just a little more direct. I tell them the only reason they're still breathing is because their mother couldn't find a coat hanger fast enough. Yeah, I just use the word fuck a lot. It's effective, not very much. So Mine's a little more fucking. A certain Lee Radswell had defended him during this Esquire debacle. In 1979, when writer and nemesis Gore Vidal... Launched a million dollar liable suit against Truman over the accusation (laughs) in this excerpt over the accusation that he'd been thrown out of the White House for being drunk. (laughs) (laughs) So Capone writes that Gore Vidal was tossed from the White House for being drunk. 
Well, I, I the can, doll sues him for a million bucks. I can see why they hate each other. Like they're both trying to occupy a, occupy a similar space in society in New York at the same time. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, the horrible but thing about libel suits, see. or you know, any, well, the ultimate defense against those type of lawsuits is the truth. So, was he drunk in the White House? And did he get kicked out? I can see it doesn't him. matter if those two are core. You know, if that if one's the cause of the other, but if he was drunk. And he was in the White House, and he got kicked out. All the all three of those things would still be true. Yeah, and just because you lined them up in the way you did, and because libel is civil and not criminal, so there's a different. I would I, I would not mind seeing some tor- court transcripts from that. Even though Lee Rad Rad's will Rad Radzewill had defended him during this Esquire thing with everybody leading up to it. When it comes to the Gorbachev suit, Radswell signs an affidavit for Gore Vidal instead. No way. Wait. Truman, in turn, labels her treacherous. So, like, this lawyer was... This was Truman's lawyer. Nah, that was Truman's lawyer turncoat? That was a friend. Just a friend. Oh, okay. There's a witness. Basically, basically what she did is she created an affidavit for him, supporting him, Gore Vidal. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not a lawyer. It's just kind of turncoats on Truman. So not Truman's friend anymore, and he called her a what? Treacherous. Just oh, just treacherous. treacherous. Oh, he could have come up with better words than that. <laughs> could, have, could have done a little bit. So I think he was really angry. Yeah. <laughs> Having failed to anticipate the backlash that Le Cote Basque would, would cause in 1965, Truman went into decline. Although he partied at Studio 54 with a new set of friends, including Andy Warhol, who had developed mm-hmm. an obsession with him, his reliance on drug and alcohol grew. In and out of various rehab clinics and hospitals, he died in 1984 of liver disease and intoxication. So, 84, he's 60-something? Wasn't he born in... 30? Yeah, he's, like, not an he old He was born guy. in 24. 24, so he's 70, then. Right? He's born in 24, 84, so he's 60. 60 yeah. Oh, so he's 60 old. years old. Yeah. That, hey, yeah. So that's... A month before his 60th birthday. <laughs> <I've outlived, laughs> that is why we're here. <laughs> I've outlived Truman. <laughs> I don't know if that's something I should Interestingly, I back for or not. <laughs> he drops dead in Bel Air, Los Angeles, a month before his 60th birthday, having been what shunned a place to, fall down in. to the end by the very people he'd once lauded. Ironic, considering his quote, it's a scientific fact that if you stay in California, you lose one IQ point for every year. (laughs) Another reason you love him, I imagine. Exactly. (laughs) Wow. Um, Well, Yeah, you start the wrap-up. No, he gets to go last. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he started started this thing. He goes first. I always forget how this works. Yeah, no, I get to go last. Okay. All right, so when I was growing up, like like I said previously, like Truman Capote was my idol. Like he was just like his own man. He got invited on Carson or whatever. He didn't give a fuck. He was just like, here I am, you know, take me as I am. And I loved that he just said whatever he wanted, um, didn't really care what you thought of his lifestyle or his stature or anything like that. Just straight up, like, before he's even in school, he's like, I'm going to be a writer. 
you know, he just charted his own course all the way, and it's like, I really love that about him. I, I think the drugs and alcohol thing was a little bit ridiculous, but I can't say that I wouldn't fall into that if I had the same level of fame as this guy did. But to this day, he remains, like, probably my my favorite writer. Certainly in the top three, but I, I think probably my favorite writer of all time. So I I really only known Capote as the the character that he is, you know the character that you see portrayed in historical because I wasn't running around during his time and when I was alive during his time I was young so it was not going to come into my my window view of the world, uh, and that's all I'd ever known. But then reading him and learning a little bit more about how unapologetic, kind of like Rupert said, unapologetic of, of, he was about his just way of being. The fact that he was never closeted gay in some in, like in those times is pretty fucking awesome and gave me a little bit more respect for him. Uh, but in the end, I don't. I mean, it feels to me almost like he's a character that he created for one of his stories, and and maybe being Truman Capote was his magnum opus and his biggest character is is creating and being Truman Capote. Um, I thank you, Rupert, for getting me to read some of his work all the way through because it was really good reading, and I burned through it pretty quickly. Uh, I am proud. I enjoyed of you it for doing. That. Enjoyed it because yeah. you read and all... sharing and sharing the um, murder by death because that movie's fucking redonkulous and so fun. <laughs> that is the funniest movie ever. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, you'll have there is to... so much shit you will laugh at that you will go. I don't know if I'm supposed to laugh at this anymore, yeah. but it's so good. <laughs> it is the funniest movie ever. But you read all of music for chameleons, yep. cover to cover. Wow. <laughs> I'm proud of Very you, Very enjoyable. Very enjoyable. I almost asked to borrow your copy of Breakfast at Tiffany. Then there's that crazy story about the guy where... All right, fuck it. All right. Well, I, I, I'm going last. <laughs> Go, John. Remember, I'm going last. And I've got big shoes to fill because now I have to do a Rupert thing here. Okay? So fuck it. Listen to me. <laughs> I guess this is how it works. <laughs> we'll do it live. I'm doing it live. <laughs> there's a couple of things that... One, I, I've only, like I said, only encountered Capote... In various little excerpts, I've enjoyed, but I his 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 understanding and use of the language is phenomenal. Every word he uses when he writes a sentence, when he it, it conveys not one thought, but the whole thing becomes a scene. It becomes a just a way to pull you in. It sets the stage. Your mind goes absolutely crazy. You see exactly what's happening right then, right there. You see it. And you see his vision of it. There's not a lot of stuff that... Like, when you read a book, well, oftentimes there's your flavor that gets put on it in your own head. Capote is one of the few that, in just a small excerpt, the one that Rupert read earlier, you actually see his vision of it. You see what he's doing. You see what he's talking about. You might be able to put a little tint on it, but you're definitely not putting your own flavor into the whole thing. Secondly, unapologetic social climber. <laughs> you used that a lot earlier. Well, uh, she did, she blew her head off. Or she yeah. committed suicide. He didn't. Well, <laughs> maybe he killed himself between I mean, drugs. Arguably and, drugs is suicide. But yeah. yeah. But... He was unapologetic. Climber. He social climbed. And he knew... But I don't know if it was... He was social climbing intentionally. He wasn't trying to gold dig. 
He was just trying to, I want to be there. I want to do this. I want to do that. And he was unapologetic about any and everything he ever fucking did. He, in the middle of, well, World well, there's World War II. <laughs> you know, there's Vietnam. There's all the other shit going on in the middle of it. There's how many people don't like people being gay. How many people don't like that. Well, give zero fucks. Oh, you, the only time that he ever changed what he did, he did because he still thought that his greater vision was going to be served by having the pictures put out too. He still got what he wanted was an accompaniment of extra media to help because he thought that was so important. It was always his, from his standpoint, yeah, he may have backtracked, but he never got off the same road. He may have slowed down his car, but he never took an exit. He never fucking told, you know, every every person that tried to cut him off, he flipped off and rammed off the road. The, the guy was just a fucking genius, and I'll go with that. This sounds like something that friends do. Well, I thought we were friends. I'm extremely uncomfortable with that. I know. Do you know? 